Now, Sean is a science communicator and presenter who has worked for over a decade with groups such as CSIRO, Museum Victoria and the Edinburgh Science Festival. He currently runs Rough Science, which provides science presentations and activities to schools and community groups in Melbourne and Edinburgh. He is particularly interested in teaching kids to make their own computer games. Please make Sean feel welcome. Good evening. Um, as was mentioned, yes, I am doing something about machines. Or more to the point, <clears throat> I've chosen to bend the rules of the evening just ever so slightly. So um, rather than about somebody in the realm of machines and autonomous technology, I'm taking the machine itself. Now, I've got three very short tales to tell about the machine, in particular thinking about our relationships to machines. Um, so, uh, for instance, you know, the, the autocorrect that uh, completely misinterprets your, your intentions, or um, maybe the, the Roomba vacuum cleaner that accidentally picks up your pet's poo and spreads it around the entire house. Um, now, this, the story I want to start off with, story number one, uh, occurs in Vienna in 1809. Um, it's in the uh, Schomburg Palace, and Napoleon, who is at this stage the emperor of France, has arrived to play a game of chess. Now, um, you have to remember this place, this palace, is a melting pot of European culture, and I would love to describe it to you, you know, using some kind of rudimentary French, because I'm learning French using Duolingo, and it's really cool. I can say, the duck is eating an apple. <laughs> Le canard mange un pomme. Eh? Eh? Le canard... Mange un pomme rouge. <laughs> any, any French speakers out here? Yeah. Ah, mied. Um, so so the, the, the court is full of writers and philosophers, musicians. There is so much going on. There is music. La femme chante. Non, rien de rien. Non, je regrette No, look, Edith Piaf probably wasn't there, unless there was some kind of really bad error with a time machine. But over there, there's, there's Napoleon, and he's playing chess. L'Empereur joue à échec. <laughs> Sacre bleu, uh, le canard joue à échec. Oh, no, 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 no. no le, le canard mange un pomme. Um, no, he's playing against a machine, la machine. Um, the, 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 the emperor and the machine are playing chess with each other. Now, just on a side note, the English word for machine comes from the French word machine, which comes from the Latin, which in turn comes from the Greek, mechos, meaning contrivance. Now, this, this contrivance in this case is known as the automaton, automaton chess player. And it was invented by Wolfgang von Kepler, 
uh, to impress the Empress Maria Theresa of uh, Austria in 1770, but this is now 1809. The, the, this, this chess player is being pulled out, repurposed, and right now, if you were to look at it, you'd see a cabinet, and there is a chess board sitting on top of it, and seated at the board was a model of man sort of in Turkish-style clothing, and in one hand he had a pipe, and in the other hand he could move over the top of the board. And importantly, in front of the cabinet, you could actually open up the doors and reveal what was inside, and so you could see some clockwork on one side, and the rest of the cabinet appeared empty. Um, this machine was an automaton, and automatons were the rage of Europe. Uh, 70 years previously, uh, they, they'd really come to a lot of big prominence by a, a celebrated inventor, a guy named Jacques de Vacanson. And he had three automatons to his name. He had one that was called the flute player which was a life-size statue of a shepherd who was playing a flute. He had another one called the tambourine player. Can you guess? <laughs> yeah, life-size figure, this time banging on tambourine. And his masterpiece, masterpiece that was uh, renowned, which was the digesting duck. Like an odd manjum pong. So this dark had uh, over 400 moving parts in just each wing alone and could flap its wings, drink water, digest grain and poo. Uh, well, sort of. It, while it, all, it, it did eat the grain and the water, what came out the other end was soggy breadcrumbs mixed with food dyes. So there was a little bit of sleight of hand going on. Anyway, nevertheless, it's now 70 years later. Lampro is now playing against La Machine. And what takes place is possibly apocryphal, but definitely, in my opinion, noteworthy. Napoleon was playing black. The machine is playing white. Now, before the machine could move, Napoleon opens. Now, if you know chess, it's always white that opens, not black. Anyway, nevertheless, the game continues. Uh, but then Napoleon moves his bishop horizontally rather than diagonally. And the machine just simply goes and picks up the offending piece, moves it back to its original place, and the game continues. Uh, Napoleon then moves a pawn sideways instead of forwards, and the machine plucks the piece off the board and takes the turn. And the game continues. And then Napoleon takes his queen, he leaps it over a whole bunch of pieces, puts it on another side of the board, and at this point the court is hushed. The machine sort of sits for a moment and then it raises its arm and sweeps it straight across the board and pieces scatter everywhere and tumble all over the floor and all eyes go to Napoleon and Napoleon, the emperor, is sitting there and he smiles and he begins to laugh and later they play a new game and after 19 moves, Napoleon loses. Now, the, the thing about Kemplin's uh, chess-playing automaton was... It was a complete hoax. Uh, although the cabinet could be opened and it revealed machinery and empty space, nevertheless, tucked away in there was a human chess player. Homo ex machina. Mm, Latin now. 
Um, apparently, a, 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 a complex mechanism allowed the operator to move the machine's arms while magnetic tokens on the underside of the board allowed you to see the placement of the pieces. Uh, in Napoleon's case, the chess master was actually a real chess master who was by the name of Johann Baptist uh, Alighieri. And he was a uh, chess master and chess historian, so he really knew his stuff and clearly liked being stuck in small spaces. Now, even though it's a hoax, I like to think of this being as an early use of the Turing test, uh, which is one of the most famous tests for machine intelligence. Uh, look, I'm sure you've heard of it, but just to recap, imagine two people uh, talking to each other using some sort of keyboard screen interface. Now, remove one of those people and replace them with some sort of computerized intelligence. Now, the test comes down to with if the remaining human, if they can't tell who they are speaking to, whether it's human or computer, then the computer is said to have passed the Turing test. Now, the chess playing automaton perhaps betrayed itself. Rather than just simply stopping play when an illegal move occurs, it did a very passionate gesture, perhaps angrily sweeping the pieces off the board. Clearly, it's human, right? Well, okay, story number two. Here's where philosophers have an alternate interpretation for the Turing test. You might often see newspaper headlines that say, robot passes Turing test. But just consider the Turing test just for a moment because there's a school of thought that says that it says more about us as humans than it does about the intelligence of a machine. The test is very subjective. There are subtleties and nuances that one person might pick up on and that's completely lost on another person. Uh, the test possibly says more about how we look for patterns in intelligence and probably even goes as far to apply agency into objects where there is none. So, some years ago, I was lucky enough to drive a BMW 5 Series. Not mine. But it was for a friend of mine. We, we were having to drive to Mildura, where I grew up, and um, this car had an early generation GPS built into the dash. So when you use it, there was no map, but instead you, you typed in the address and a calm voice just read out directions to you. You know, sort of, at the next intersection, turn left. At the roundabout, turn right. Now, because it didn't have a map, you couldn't actually see the route that it was taking you on. Um, I already knew how to get to Mildura, it's fairly easy, uh, but I was curious to see what the nav system would tell us to do. Now, uh, on the way out of Melbourne, it took us on a really interesting route, um, and then it was pretty much plain sailing, uh, f going north, until we got to a little town called Oyen. Anyone been to Oyen? Hey, okay. Really nice lamingtons. Um, Oyen is about an hour away from Mildura, and it's, and it's pretty straightforward to get from Oyen to Mildura. It's just another hour north. But instead, the GPS said, in 200 meters, turn left. Uh, so I humored it. I drove and turned left. And then it next said, drive straight for 200 kilometers. <laughs> it was taking us to Mildura via Adelaide. Um, so I ignored it. I turned around, I started on the actual road to Mildura, and then this thing happened. It started saying, 
find a safe place to pull over and do a U-turn. Find a safe place to pull over and do a U-turn. Find a safe place to pull over and do a U-turn. Find a safe place to pull over and do... Look, it was just simply repeated. Now, I know logically it was exactly the same sentence said in exactly the same voice. But my head was thinking, she's getting angry. (laughs) She really wants me to turn around. In a moment, she's going to say, the car is filling up with carbon monoxide. For you are too stupid to drive, human. But then it rerouted and everything was fine and we got to Mildura. Now, psychologically, our brains do strange things when sentences are repeated. Psychologically, our brains do strange things (laughs) when sentences are repeated. In this case, I was interpreting real agency behind the words. Not only that, I was also interpreting emotion. And this, for some psychologists and computer scientists, is what is at heart, what is at heart of the Turing test, or as Turing called it, the imitation game. We, as humans, imbue intention, intelligence, and emotion in the machines that surround us. Machine number three. There was a mathematician called Claude Shannon uh, in the USA in the mid 20th century, and he laid the groundwork for information theory, which is basically the backbone of how computers talk to each other um, through networks like the internet. Now, Shannon had in his office a really curious machine. He had named it the ultimate machine. Now, I don't know whether he actually built it or whether it was given to him. It was reported uh, by Arthur C. Clarke, uh, who wrote about it, uh, having, having met him and seen the machine. And Arthur C. Clarke was quite disturbed by the machine. Um, it's called the ultimate machine because you discover that when you turn it on, its sole purpose is to then turn itself off. <laughs> so there's a box, a big on switch, you flick on, The machine makes a huge amount of noise. This hand comes out of the lid, it reaches down, and it flicks the switch off. (laughs) And then vanishes back inside. Arthur C. Clarke found this incredibly unnerving. This, This idea of a machine whose whole sole purpose and intention was just simply turn itself off again. Um, intention, intelligence, emotion. Look, I've, I've just got one last brief tale to add. United States currently has the largest drone program in the world, uh, flying drones through zones of interest, and they use these drones to detect mobile phone signals and collect phone numbers and other metadata, and somewhere in this metadata will indicate whether a person of interest might be at a particular given time and a particular given place. And depending on the person of interest, they might like to uh, then... uh, A a drone could then be used to fire a missile or drop a bomb. Now, for citizens in these zones of interest, for many of them, the only interaction, the only interaction they've ever had in their entire lives with the Western world is through a drone. 
which could be piloted or it could be autonomous. Now, what does this interaction speak to citizens about the West's intentions and emotions towards them? Now, that might seem like a really down note to end on, um, but there is a gleam of hope. It is Science Week at the moment, and students all over the country are having fun learning STEM and making robots and learning code and, and making things like computer games or ducks that can do poo. Um, now, there is a new curriculum being rolled out that introduces students to coding computers, and this is the little gleam of hope that I have. Now, I don't expect every student to have, you know, become fluent in Python or C++ or Ruby or whatever. Um, but education is a long game. Um, we may see a shift in the conversation around technology and our relationship to it and how we should use it. Um, particularly if students become aware of the computational thinking and so, you know, devices like this no longer is, is a black box. The black box starts to become a bit more transparent. So a rumor spreading room around your house doesn't actually have it in for you, and the autocorrect isn't deliberately trying to make you angry by typing ducking when you clearly mean something else. Um, somewhere in the cabinet of the machine, there is a chess master. Um, the machines that we choose to, live, uh, choose to use in our lives may say more about us than the machines themselves, and better education around them, particularly we can start making better choices about how we use them. And we don't yet have to welcome our new robot overlords. Thank you.